1: Hello everyone, I am C. P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Tasha Alexander, the author of Death in the Floating City, the seventh in her series featuring Lady Emily, a Victorian aristocrat. Her book opens with a poem by Lord Byron, I stood in Venice on the Bridge of Sighs from the fourth canto of Child Harold's Pilgrimage. I'm going to skip over that though and read her first three paragraphs instead. The eye of the passage that follows is Lady Emily. "'I'd expected jewel-encrusted, not encased in a layer of dried blood. "'Almost cringing, I fingered the slim medieval dagger "'that felt heavier in my hands than its size suggested. Tourists come to Venice, the city Petrarch called Mundus Altar, "'another world, to take in the opulent beauty "'of the floating city's palaces, "'the soft colors and vibrant gold of St. Mark's Basilica, "'and the rich elegance of Titian's paintings. "'My trip, however, came without the prospect of such pleasant things.' I was standing in a dark, musty palazzo with my childhood nemesis glowering over my shoulder as I inspected the knife an intruder had used to kill her father-in-law. An unpleasant sensation prickled up my neck as I stared down. Instruments of murder are not something with which a lady contends on a daily basis, particularly not one still bearing evidence of its evil use. The police returned it to me in just that condition, Emma Callum said, wrinkling her nose. I wasn't about to touch it and the servants point-blank refused to clean it. I'd fire the lot of them if my Italian were better. Emma Callum is the aforementioned childhood nemesis who ran away from London High Society a few years before to marry an Italian count, with, as you hear, unfortunate results. Two podcasts ago, we visited, in virtual terms, one of the candidates for the title Venice of the North. Today will be more like a whirlwind tour with side trips to Santorini, London, Vienna, Istanbul, and more as we head for La Serenissima, City of Gondolas and Renaissance Palazzi, under Tasha Alexander's skilled guidance. Hi, Tasha. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Uh, today, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I'm talking with Tasha Alexander. Uh, the New York Times best-selling author of a series of historical mysteries starring starring Lady Emily, the most recent of which is Death in the Floating City. Uh, I've loved Lady Emily since I first encountered her, and and only to deceive, so interviewing her creator is a special pleasure for me. Uh, Tasha, I'd like to begin where I always begin by asking you to talk about yourself and how you became a writer.
0: Well, I became a writer in a way that I think happens to a lot of writers, I started reading. I love reading. I, my, my first memory truly is being very little, and my mother was reading to me. She was reading out loud from Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. I spent most of my youth under my dining room table pretending it was a covered wagon. Uh, but she was reading the book out loud to me in our living room. We were sitting on the sofa, and I realized all of a sudden that I was further ahead on the page than she was. And it was the most astonishing thing I'd ever experienced because I thought, wow, you don't need a grown-up for this. And it was, it's the world, you know, when you learn how to read, that is an entire universe opening up to you. And from that moment on, I just read everything I could get my hands on. And I think if you really love reading like that, it's natural to want to start writing because there's a way in which writing really is the ultimate reading experience. Because everything works out exactly the way you want it to, which doesn't always happen when you when you're reading. Um, so from the time I was very young I would write, you know, terribly awful short stories that I would bind in cardboard with, you know, yarn as the as the as the spine. Um, but as I got older, you know, we become practical and realized that we need things like health insurance and rent money. And so when I graduated from college I you know, I hadn't studied writing ever. I was an English major because of loving to read. Uh, I did English and I actually did medieval history as well. Um, but I had never taken writing classes. And so when I graduated, you, know, you don't come out of college saying, well, great, I'll go be a novelist. And that's a good way to support my family because it's, you know, it doesn't seem realistic and practical. So I worked a series of very uninspiring jobs um, until my son was born. And what I realized the whole time I was working those jobs was, you know, we have such a tendency in our society to define ourselves by what we do, what our job is, you know, are you a lawyer, are you a doctor, what is your job? And as I was working these soul-crushing jobs, I would say, you know, I'm whatever I was at the moment, I spent some time as a pharmaceutical sales rep, Uh, but I would always say, well, I'm a sales rep, but I want to be a writer. And I was always following up with, "I want to be a writer." And I was at home one afternoon, and this was when I wasn't—right, I wasn't working at the moment because my son was a tiny baby, and well, actually, I guess he was three. But now that he's thirteen, that seems like a tiny baby. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was reading *Gaudy Night* by Dorothy L. Sayers.
1: Um, oh, one of my favorites. Uh,
0: such a wonderful, wonderful book. And in that book, you know, Harriet Vane is trying to decide whether or not to marry Peter Wednesday. She's having a conversation with one of her friends, and she's saying, you know, if I marry this guy, am I going to lose everything that I want to be? And her friend sort of thinks about it and says, no, no, I don't think you will. Only she says it with a British accent and much more eloquently. But she says, when you know what it is that you really want to do... You will do it, regardless of your circumstances. Everything will be steamrolled in its way. And that passage, uh, which I'm quoting extremely badly, really just jumped off the page at me. Because all these years when I said, well, but I want to be a writer, I want to be a writer, it would be followed by, well, I want to be a writer, but you know, obviously I have this baby now and I can't. Or my job, I'm working 70 hours a week, so I can't. And there were all these excuses and reasons that I couldn't write. And there's really nothing easier in the world than to think of reasons not to write. You know, it's very easy to procrastinate. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. It really is. But when I read that that bit from Gaudy Night, I just it struck me because I thought, you know, this is true. When you really, really want to do something, you figure out a way to do it. You do. And I really think that at the end of the day, people do do the things that really matter to them. And so I just, in that moment, I thought, all right, that's it. Either I have to stop saying I want to be a writer or I have to sit down and actually write something. And the very next day I started writing what became Ant-Only to Deceit. Ah. Uh, I haven't, haven't looked back.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great. So uh, did you do an MFA and stuff or did you just sit
0: down and write? I sat down and write. I just sat down and, and wrote. I, um, What I did, I think at that point, you know, what I was interested in was not, I wasn't so much thinking about publication. I mean, everyone who writes hopes that they are going to be published. But at that moment, I was really just thinking, okay, I need to do this for myself. I need to write a book. So what are the things that I'm really interested in? Because I guess, you know, I had gone through in previous you know, years I had thought about writing, and I would always try to think about, well, what would be the kind of book someone would buy? But this time, and I, I never got anywhere and never even wrote three pages, because that is a terrible way to decide what kind of book to write. And this time I just thought, okay, what do I like? Well, I have always adored classical art. I think it's stunningly beautiful. I've always been fascinated by the idea of art forgeries, particularly, and that really stemmed out of my interest in classical art, because... You know, anyone who has gone through uh, the ancient galleries in an art museum sees that you get piece after piece of sculpture that will be Roman copy of the original Greek, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for so sure, it's a copy, but it's 2,000 years old and it's in a museum. So we're not really it's, – it's not a forgery, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not the original, but we still value it as art and so to me it's so that's such a fascinating thing because where is that dividing line between art and forgery art and copy you know if you go in you know if I go into the Art Institute in Chicago and I look at that gallery and then I go into the gift shop there will be reproductions of pieces right but but we don't think those are exactly art because they're copies
1: but we don't well, think they're forgery either because they're acknowledged to be copies
0: Exactly, exactly. So I just think, it, 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 I've always been fascinated by that that idea of what is it that makes it art? Why is one thing a worthless copy and one thing an inspired original? So I, I wanted to think about that. And, and that was really the, the bit that, for me, gave me the seed for the plot of that first book. Um, I had decided to set it in the 1890s because that has been a time period that has always fascinated me. You know, you you get, I've I've always been an Anglophile, and when you look at that late Victorian period, particularly the 1890s, you've got women finally starting to have some rights separately from their husbands. They're coming into their own socially and politically in a way that they've not done in the Victorian period earlier. Um, So it's a time of great social upheaval and change, but it's also this gorgeous, gorgeous gilded age with these fantastic gowns and, you know, these posh lifestyles. But on top of that, we as, as contemporary readers or writers know that that world is going to fall apart within a generation and be completely decimated by World War I. And I, I love the idea of, of looking at a society that's in decline but doesn't really know it's in decline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I just sort of wanted to throw all these things together and say, okay, these are things I'm interested in. How do I make these things a novel? And, and that's where I just, you know, you start asking yourself questions about, okay, well, with, and only to deceive the first book opens with my protagonist, Emily, um, standing on a cliff in, on, on Santorino, Greek Island. And I had a very strong image of her in my head standing there and I knew, um, I knew virtually nothing about her at that time, except that I knew the time, the, the time period. Um, and so I started asking questions. Well, okay, if she's this Victorian woman and she's a, a young woman, why is she in Greece? How could that be possible? Okay, she has a villa in Greece. Well, how would she own a villa in Greece? Well, it was her husband's. But I didn't want her to have a husband. I wanted her to, I wanted her to really be able to be independent for a while. So if she doesn't have a husband, then he must be dead. Okay, well then did she marry someone older and he died? No, I didn't want that. You know, you start asking these questions and the whole story fills itself in, you know, and that's how how I came up with the plot of that book.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, my novel uh, developed very much in the same way. I started yeah. asking questions, you know, how is the heroine going to be this way? Um, and then you find an answer and then that dictates the next part of the plot. But that's really interesting. I'm so Santorini, uh, is this a place that you have been yourself?
0: I have been, yeah. I was there and I, years ago, probably 15 years ago. I just loved it, loved it. It's such a stunning, stunning place in the world. You know, this dramatic cliffs and the ocean in front of you and the caldera where the volcano was um, in ancient times. It's It's just beautiful.
1: It's such a contrast to London, too.
0: It is, it is. But I felt like by setting up Emily the way I set her up where her late husband what what happens in that first book is that he has died when the book opens and in fact he's been dead for nearly 2 years and Emily had never bothered to get to know him particularly this was a time period when arranged marriages were quite normal or even if not strictly arranged that you know you were you were getting married because somebody needed a title, or somebody needed money, or this was a good alliance for the two families. Um, There wasn't always a deep personal connection between the two people getting married. And when Emily decides to marry Philip, it is as much to remove herself from her mother's house, which has become an unbearable place to live, as to be with Philip. She doesn't Particularly, she doesn't dislike Philip, but she doesn't have any special affection for him. And so she agrees very quickly to marry him. They get married. He is a big game hunter. He goes off on safari and dies. So, you know, she spent a handful of weeks with this guy. Now he's dead, and she's living in his house. His fortune has been irrevocably settled on her. And, you know, I decided that because I wanted her to have the money and resources to travel and to to do things in the world without having to worry about the financial details because isn't it enough that we have to worry about that in real life? <laughs> right. I don't want to have to worry about my bills and Emily's bills. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> um, but um, in the course of that first novel, what happens is there, there are a series of things that happen to Emily that makes her think more about Philip, her late husband, and she starts reading his journal. She starts trying to get to know the husband that she's already lost. And he is a more typical Victorian man. He was very interested in, you know, you neoclassical know, art, classical art. Um, had that kind of traditional English education that would have been weighted very heavily towards classic subjects. You know, he would he learned Greek. He knew Latin, and when Emily realizes that he had actually been this really interesting, worthy man who did have a deep affection for her, she thinks, wow, I, I completely blew this. I missed out on this guy. And she's, in an attempt to feel closer to him, picks up his interests and takes them on as her own and then finds that she's actually really fascinated by, by Greek art, by the language, by reading Homer. And so that gives her a reasonable springboard to the intellectual enlightenment that she needed to go through to get from being, you know, a sort of -of run-of-the-mill, fairly vapid society girl who did like to read but who was perfectly content being a society girl to what she becomes in the later books where she is a strong, independent, forward-thinking woman. And that was really my whole vision for the series. I wanted to think about, you know, that period of time in, in the eighteen nineties where you're getting all this social change. You know, I think we've all heard about wonderful Victorian people who were eccentric and sort of sprung sprung out at birth, you know, ready to change the world. And there are wonderful characters like that those people might be pushing for change and, and war, but until the more ordinary people, the people like Emily is at the beginning of And Only to Deceive, who aren't wanting for anything, who are comfortable, happy, content, until those people start to look at the society around them and say, you know what, this isn't okay the way this is. What's going on in the East End is, is unacceptable. The way the poor are being treated, the way women don't have rights, until those people more ordinary people start pushing for change, you can't get a wholesale shift in how a society is thinking. So I wanted to explore what would make one of those ordinary people make that change.
1: And she grows a great deal during the series. Um, At the very beginning, she's in a very... um, Awkward position in the sense that one of the things we learn about her right away, as you mentioned, is that she doesn't really mourn her husband at the beginning, and yet she's in formal mourning, and this is, you know, I'm never quite sure how much my listeners know about the history of specific places and specific times, but, sure. you know, this is sort of gone with the wind mourning where you are dressed in black from head to foot for a year and then you're allowed to wear gray and lilac and not dance at parties and so on for another year. So she's got this superficial um, observance that she has to make as part of her society, and yet she doesn't have any of the internal feelings. And then just as the... Her formal mourning ends. She actually begins to develop feelings.
0: Exactly. Yes. And a lot of the time, when when we think about Victorian culture, so you know, there are so many rituals and rules, like the the conventions for mourning. And there's a part in the book where where um, Colin asks Emily, "Is this helpful?" Is this making you, is this helping you with your grief? Well, of course, she doesn't want to tell him that she's not grieving. But, you know, we look back on rituals like that and think how ludicrous. You're going to force this woman for a year to wear black, for another year to wear half mourning. She can't go to parties. She can't go to dances. Shouldn't she be deciding what is going to help her grieve? But then on the other hand, you start to see that, Sometimes, if a person, I mean, not necessarily in Emily's case, because she wasn't truly grieving emotionally during the mourning period, Uh, but if you were, maybe it's a relief to not have to go out. Maybe it is helpful to have a set period of time where you say, okay, for this year, I am totally isolated. I don't have to deal with anything. And then the year following that, you start to get back out into society a little bit in in a... gentle sort of way you know maybe that does help i mean we look at it and reject it immediately because it's so different from what we expect now but a lot of times these rules that seem arcane and ridiculous come from a place that that wasn't strictly intended to just be repressive and horrible
1: and even with emily it gives her a space where she can begin to explores some of these things that, you know, She she's not constantly caught up in one party after another. So she's able to go to the British Museum and um, start to learn Greek and read Homer and all of the stuff that she's trying to do.
0: Exactly. And in fact, when I started writing the second book, the difficulty for Emily was going to be that in that second book, she is now wholly out of mourning, and it's the height of the London season. So how does she take the woman she's become which is a more enlightened person with a rich intellectual life how do you reconcile that with the way you're supposed to be in london high society where women you know young women in upper class london at that time period were not supposed to make eye contact they were supposed to not, they weren't supposed to give their own opinions about things they were supposed to you know politely agree and be very demure and laugh prettily at the right things and and talk about the weather and their horses. Um, And Emily is no longer satisfied behaving like that. She wants more, and so she has to then go back into society and see how she can can reconcile her new interests with the world that she's from. And and that was the other thing with the series. Um, I wanted to really be true to that time period, I didn't want to just take a 21st century person, cram her into a bustle and a corset, and say, oh, look, she's Victorian. You know, it's kind of like I was saying about the the restrictions and the social mores in the Victorian era with mourning or or whatever. You know, it's very easy for us to look at these things and say, ridiculous, what do you mean these women weren't supposed to make eye contact and weren't supposed to have interests of their own and were supposed to defer everything to their husbands? Well, we have not been brought up to think that way. If you have been brought up to think that way and it has never occurred to you until you're, you know, a young widow that there's another way to be, you can't just instantly turn your back on everything that you know. So it's not a simple process. It's not just, you know, that you wake up and have this revelation and say, wow, this society's stupid. I reject everything. That's not realistic. It's going to take Emily time and, and that's what I've tried to do over the books. You know, that second book, she's in London dealing with the high society people. And the third one, um, she travels to Vienna because what I wanted to do is have her start seeing a broader view of the world. Um, because, you know, if you are always in your narrow, narrow sphere, you don't get a lot of new ideas and see how people, people who aren't of your class, people who, who, who either aren't in your class Or aren't your servants? How are those people living in the rest of the world? And so I wanted her, over the course of the series, to keep getting a broader and broader view of the world, of different cultures, of different places, um, so that she could, in the end, come out a a really forward-thinking young woman.
1: Yes, and I think that's very well done. I mean, it's one of the things I particularly like about the series is that she does come across as a Victorian young woman rather than um, a more modern young woman than is really appropriate for that.
0: Well, thank you. And I know it, sometimes it can be frustrating for readers because sometimes people say to me, Well, I wanted her to, didn't she just see this so was stupid? Why didn't she just by the end of the first book get this? Well, you and I would, but she couldn't. Yeah.
1: And now I went through that too. My heroine is um, 16th century and she's mm-hmm. in an arranged marriage. And somebody said to me, Well, I just wanted her to run away. And I'm like, <laughs> Right, but, no I mean, she's been brought up from birth to think that her father is going to decide he's going to pick the right man for her. And she wouldn't, the idea of running away just would never but, occur and what to would she her.
0: Even, what would she even do? Yeah, where would she go? You, right. you can't be a 16th century woman, run away on your own. And, you know, it's not like you can run off to Manhattan or Hollywood and become a movie star. <laughs>
1: or even get a teaching job, right. I mean, exactly.
0: But I think that's one of the real challenges with writing historical fiction you have to balance, you you know your readers have certain expectations because of the world they live in, but you are trying to transport them to a different time and a different mindset. I think it's so, so critically important to stay true to that time, even when it irritates readers, which it can sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is how you explain it, but I think you do a, a really good job of balancing that. and. You know the Emily is also in this tradition of Victorian women who are quite adventurous, despite being yes. so demure i mean the, this is the age when women start to travel, you know they go to Kashgar on a bike exactly. or they exactly
0: well, you have Gertrude Bell mapping Persia
1: right
0: it's a It's a wonderful time for that, and but it's also it's been interesting to me because i am um you know I did study history in college, and so i I love doing historical research. And I love how surprised that research can make you. Because, like, when I was researching, I have a book that's set in Constantinople, and I wanted to send Emily there. Well, I had thought about doing a book in India, because, I, but I thought, you know, it's so. I wanted to do something less obvious, and I wanted her to go somewhere different. And I started reading the letters of British ambassador's wives to the Ottoman Empire, and they were having fantastic experiences in Constantinople. They're hanging out with the concubines. They're, you know, in the 1880s, the British ambassador's wife was socializing with the sultan. She was the first Western woman to ever sit at his table and have dinner. And she was just in and out of the harem constantly, telling them how the children should be raised. She was an extraordinary woman. And I thought, well, this would be a great place to send Emily because everyone knows that, you know, the women in the Ottoman Empire were even more repressed than the English women, right? Well, actually, no. What I found when I started doing the research is that the Ottoman women in that time period had far more legal rights than their English counterparts, which, which blew my mind. I had no idea
1: Yeah, it is amazing. Um, That book, Tears of Pearl, was my absolute favorite until I read this one. Although Crimson Warning, I also like very much. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Which is, I should mention the book immediately before Death in the Floating City, which I think we should probably move towards. Sure, yes, yes. (laughs) But um, Crimson Warning is back in London, and someone uh, unknown, of course, is... um, causing society to tremble because he, the person is painting people's front doorsteps bright red um, to as a way of, or actually just before blowing some scandal that they managed to sit on for the last right. 30 or 40 years. Um, so everybody is trembling. But Tears of Pearl, I loved. I thought it was great. Um, of course, I'm a Russian historian, right? And I'm writing about Tatars who are related right. to the Ottomans. So.
0: I was uh, especially—they
1: are fascinating. They are fascinating. Uh, anyway, so so uh, Emily has been even in the first book. She goes to Paris. She's thinking yeah. about going to Africa to find her husband. Yep. And then she goes to Ven- Vienna, excuse me, and um, then to France and back to London. And now she's in Venice. And uh, you have been to Venice, I'm guessing. There's a picture of you in what looks yeah. like Venice on your website.
0: Yes, well actually I I went to Venice and I just I just instantly one hundred percent fell madly, madly, madly in love with it. It is just an extraordinary place and it is to my mind heaven for someone who writes historical fiction because, you know, you can go to London and say, Okay, so Emily would have lived in Park Lane and I'm standing in Park Lane and, okay, well, I, I pretend that that modern hotel isn't there and I imagine a Georgian townhouse, you know. You have to really use a lot of imagination, even though there are lots of, of parts of Victorian England that are still there. You know, it's not like Venice where you truly don't see much change in the city over the centuries. You know, there aren't a bunch of new buildings in, in Venice Um so instead of you, you instead of having to kind of imagine what it would have looked like in the Renaissance or in the 19th century, you're you're there. And the famous story that you hear everywhere about Venice, and I, I know I put it in the book, is that people always say if you took a 15th century Venetian, plopped him down in the Piazza San Marco today, he would be able to find his home and it would still be there. Because That's the, very the, impressive. Yeah, the city just hasn't really changed, and it's just such a a place of such contrast. You've got this, these opulent palazzo that or palazzi, I should say, that are you know, just spectacularly beautiful. Um, and you know, you go down the Grand Canal and you see them rising out of the water on, on both sides. But then you get into the Calais behind them, and you know, you're on these tiny little narrow streets that twist and turn and dump you out into either a dead end or an enormous square with a beautiful church. You know, it's just, it's a city just shadow and light changing constantly. And it's really, I just, I just was, I don't think I've ever been so struck by a place. So I I decided at once that I wanted to do a book there. Um, But I had had that in the back of my mind from the very, very beginning when I was writing And Only to Deceive. I had never, I at that point hadn't been to Venice. But I had always wanted to go, and I did have in that in that first book. There's a character, Emma Callum, who we see again in Death in the Floating City, um, who is a, a, a side character in in Deceive. She is Emily's childhood nemesis; they abhor each other. And in and only to Deceive, Emma runs off and elopes to Venice with an Italian count. And I had I had. Made it Venice just because I had this sort of secret hope in the back of my brain that maybe if, you know, I could get the first book published and if if I could you know, turn it into a long-running series, that maybe eventually I would be in a position where I could have Emily go to Venice. And so Floating City was the culmination of, of that hope. Um, and it, I felt like it was the right time for that book because, like I said before, I've been trying to, you know, broaden Emily's world, have her go to see different cultures, et cetera, et cetera. But I think another part of coming into one's own is learning how to deal with people. And I think we've all had had people that we've met or we work with or come across in some sort of social situation, people who we simply do not get along with for whatever reason. You know, we try, it doesn't work, we don't get along. But you don't get to just say, great, I don't get along with that person. I'm not ever dealing with them again. You might work with them every day. And I wanted Emily to have to go back and deal with Emma at a time when Emma needs her so that Emily can't say, well, I don't care. I'm not dealing with you. She's thinking, okay, I need to go help you because um, Emma's father-in-law has been murdered and her husband has run off and, and everyone assumes he killed the father. Um, and and Emma, who kindly points out that someone of her social standing wouldn't cavort with people who solve murders. And so it's just (laughs) a miracle, frankly, that she even knows Emily. Um, But Emily goes. And what I wanted to explore was how you deal with those people who are tricky, who are prickly, who you're not going to ever be best friends with. And I didn't want the end result to be that, oh, well, gosh, you know what? Emily helped Emma. Now they love each other. No, because you know what? That's not how people really behave.
1: No, although she does sort of come, well, I guess she, you could say she comes to terms with, I mean, childhood nemesis are particularly difficult, I think, too.
0: I think so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And what, what happens is, is that they come to a much more adult, grown-up way of dealing with each other they kind of accept that they're never going to be close friends, but they can have a sort of civil relationship that's not constantly reopening the the wounds of childhood and and move on from there.
1: Yes, yes, I thought that was very realistic. Um, There's also a second story in this book, um, which I want to get to, and then I'm going to ask you if there's a passage that you want to read um, from the book. But there's... I'm wondering if this is part of your interest in medieval history, although this is a little later than medieval. There is a... a, I'm trying to figure out how to put this to (laughs) not give too much away. Right. There is a manuscript that is involved in the story, and the manuscript, it develops in this kind of Romeo and Juliet-like story um, that turns out to be somehow connected to the murder, but I won't go further than that. (laughs) Um, Did you... Uh, did, uh, where did this come from this idea uh, well including the second story
0: when i when i started researching venice so i had decided I, I had a lot in place about what i wanted the 1890s stories to be but i felt really strongly that you couldn't do a book in venice and ignore the renaissance because it was such a, an amazing time in the city which at that point in time was an independent republic um and when, so when I started researching Venice, because when I had been in college, I, I had done medieval stuff, and I had sort of stuck more to English and French, but I had always, you know, the Renaissance was later than my period, but I'd always been interested by it. It was an, it's an amazing time. Um, and so when I started reading about Venice during the Renaissance, you find this society, you know, we think about the rules and regulations of the, the Victorians in England, right? In Renaissance, Venice, uh, they, you have that on the one hand, it's this wildly debauched city, right, that we've all, you know, know about in the carnival and the courtesans and the art and all this, but you have these the noble families who um, want to do everything they can to preserve their family's wealth. And Part of the way they do this is that no matter how many children they have, and they generally would have a lot of children, right? This is a nice Catholic country. <laughs> Everyone's having babies constantly. You might have 11 kids in a family. They will only let one of the daughters and one of the sons get married because they don't want the money getting split up further than that. Yeah, that was a real surprise to me. Um, me me to too. That. And when I read that, and then I started reading about that you had, what? Well, so what would happen is you know, and it wouldn't necessarily be the oldest son and the oldest daughter. It would be whichever daughter they thought was the most beautiful, who could get the best, you know, best best match, um, and and bring the most prestige and hopefully money, you know, <laughs> to the family. And the same with the son. You know, who was the one who would who would be best suited to running the family business and capable of it, of enticing um, a bride from a really wealthy family. Um, so, you m- so you'd so you have these two who would get married, but then what, what do you do with the other nine kids? Well, one of the other sisters generally would stay in the family Palazzo and help take care of the children of the son who got married. So there's a great fate, right? You get to, like, live in the attic and, and be a, a, an unpaid governess. The rest of the girls would be sent to convents. And so you had these convents all around the city and on neighboring islands that were full of women who had absolutely no vocation to be a nun, might not have even been... I mean, everyone in the Renaissance was was fairly religious. You know, religion was a huge part of life then. But that doesn't mean, you know, going to church and even having some strong beliefs doesn't mean that you necessarily want to be a nun. And so you've got these wealthy women set up in these convents where... They're having parties. They are, there's a great story about um, these two men digging a hole through the like a tunnel through the wall of the convent so they could get in and out to to meet their lovers who were nuns more easily. Um, you know, it's hardly surprising that if if the bulk of your people, the bulk of the members of a religious order are actually not religious, you're not going to really have a very spiritual environment in the convent. Um, then you have, so, so you've got these girls shut up in the convent, and then you've got the boys, because they're all these boys who also can't get married, and they are kind of just marauding bachelors around town. And they just, these are guys who have enough money that they can kind of hang out and do what they want, but they weren't really necessarily working, they weren't allowed to get married, that the city actually, the council in the city got so concerned about them running amok that they actually initially wanted courtesans because they had this kind of just very bizarre, well, not, it men- <laughs> sounds medieval, but Renaissance fear that if because the men weren't allowed to get married, that they would become homosexual. So they felt, well, we've got to have prostitutes in the city to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> the mentality there. Is. <laughs> I mean, it's just, this is the stuff you can't make up. <laughs> So then you get these brothels and the courtesans, and so you've got, you know, you've got this famous bridge in Venice where the courtesans would stand and, you know, remove bodices so that the guys going by on the boats below could see who looked the best and, you know, come look for them in the evening. It's such a bizarre situation, and... Because of that, the way people weren't allowed to get married, and I was really fascinated by the fact that it was the men, too, because we're we're used to, you know, the women being controlled by the family in a way that we're not used to men being. And here you had it that they were kind of both being equally um, controlled. So I wanted to, to write a story about that because I thought it did give a good kind of parallel insight into some of the 19th century mores you know, to see what things were like in a different time and how there were ways in which it was similar and ways in which it was different. Um, and I just, I guess I was just so taken with that idea of people not being allowed to get married because that is such a poignant thing, you know. You, you, I, I read a series of letters of, that I found in an archive that um, were about this. This couple, they were madly in love with each other, but they weren't allowed to get married. Because they weren't the chosen for their family, and they went they corresponded for years years and that was it they couldn't even see each other you know they had kind of met coincidentally when when the younger when the girl was still young enough that she was out and about in society before she got sent to the the convent and it's just so heartbreaking to think simply because these families want to preserve wealth these generations of people were just not allowed to live their life the way they wanted
1: to. It's curious, really. I mean, it, it, they, they couldn't have done that in Russia because um, mortality was so high. I mean, yes. the, the whole thing was that they, I mean, people would have two or three marriages, all of them arranged to progressively younger women because, you know, 50% of the children died and you could have six sons and you'd be lucky if one of them made it to adulthood. I'm surprised that that wasn't a factor. Did they keep the young men in reserve so that they could marry one of them off later? I mean, they
0: must have, because certainly you would have had very high child mortality rates at that time period. And, but I guess, you know, they, there certainly weren't lots of people that never did get married. Um, and you do get the occasional story of somebody who was supposed to be the one who got married and didn't want to and runs off or something. Um, but I guess you know, I, I wonder because you know you did have you did have plague in Venice and you did have other diseases that that would have periodically kind of cleaned out the population. You know, um, but yeah, I guess they just enough people lived long enough that that they could. Keep doing this.
1: Well, I guess it was a merchant city primarily rather than a yeah. warrior city, so maybe that helps a little bit. But still, That's yeah, a... you would think that the plague comes, I mean, the plague came through like every 20 years or so.
0: Yeah, because that, I mean, there was just nothing anyone could do with that. But you did have, because it was a merchant city, and because it was physically isolated by the lagoon, you know, and then the Venetian lagoon is very difficult to navigate on a boat because there are Spots where it will be only three feet deep and so if you don't have the right chart you can't you can't just you know float up to venice um and so whenever there were times that somebody wanted to come and attack the venetians they would go move markers in the lagoon and make it so that nobody who didn't really know the lagoon, could get to the city. And, in fact, when you look at the city's architecture, I mean, this was a time period when when you've got these beautiful palazzi and the doge's palace going up in Venice. That's a period of time where, in most of Europe, you know, the kings are building fortified castles. But what the doge is doing in Venice is saying, you can't even get to me. I don't need a fortification. Look how beautiful my palace is. It's a palace, not a castle, because you can't touch me. And that really was the case of mm-hmm. until Napoleon, but so I think that geographic isolation i mean it, it kept them from from losing tons of men in wars. I mean, they did have some where they went off to they went off to Constantinople at one point, but it wasn't the driving force of the city you know there wasn't a lot of, of fighting
1: so into this uh somewhat you know, 400 years later or so comes Lady Emily, and as you mentioned, she's there because of her friend, Emma, well, not friend, her right. <laughs> her acquaintance, <laughs> her childhood nemesis, Emma's father-in-law having been killed, and um, uh, Emma's husband having run off, so everybody assumes that he has done it. And then you have a side story of Niccolò and Bessina, who are the couple who can't get married. We won't go further right. than that. Um. Is there anything more that you would like people to hear about the story? And is there a section of the story? I'm going to read the first three paragraphs in my introduction. So that by the time people okay, hear well, this, I, they will have heard it already. But.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's good. You probably read it better than I do. And plus, I always feel funny reading for my books because I don't sound like Emily. I don't even have a British accent. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> Whereas I'm told I do on the radio. least
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That's excellent. No, I mean, I would just hope, I mean, the thing with, with Death in the Floating City is, I wanted it, you know, it it is far along in the series, but I wrote it specifically in a way that it could be an entry point, so if you've never read any of the other books, you absolutely could pick up Floating City, and you wouldn't be missing anything. I mean, yes, you would know, I I think we talked about this a little on email event, sure, you're going to know that Emily is married again, and so... Theoretically, that could change the way you read the first book. But I think that you'd probably figure that out anyway just from reading the jacket copy, you know, of yeah. the other books. But I, I wanted it to really stand on its own um, in the series. So that- and it
1: does. I mean, I think that's true, actually, of each of the books, that you could pick the series up at any point. and And the only thing, really, that you would know is that Emily has remarried and who she has remarried. Yeah. Um, and even then, with the first book, the question is not so much whether her now husband was responsible, but who was right. responsible.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, because in fact, in that first book, I wanted it to be that you know Emily is she's sheltered, she's naive. It makes sense in her brain to suspect him, but it's not going to make sense in our brains to suspect him.
1: Right, and it did But it that's didn't. okay. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's
1: true. And in fact, it's it's almost. It's part of her character, as you say. I mean, she's she's young and she's got this husband that she married for reasons that to her made perfect sense. But that now she's realizing the downside of it. And and she doesn't really have a sense of who she can trust or who, you know, exactly. even who these people in society really are. She's, I don't remember how old she is at the beginning of the novel, but she's in her early 20s, I think.
0: She's young. You know, I've I've always been deliberately vague about how old she is. In fact, I'm not entirely sure how old she is. And I did that because when I first started writing, I read an interview. Have you ever read Elizabeth Peters?
1: Oh, I love Elizabeth Peters. And, uh, in fact, if you like art forgery things, her Vicki Bliss yeah. mysteries are. Oh, I
0: love her. I absolutely, absolutely love her. I love, I, if I were to everything she has written, and she writes under Barbara Michaels, too. You know, she's got mm-hmm. all these books. But I read an interview with her talking about the Amelia Peabody series, and she said that when she wrote the first book, I believe Amelia is 27, so you know, in the Edwardian days, an ancient spinster, a spinster, right? Right. Uh, and she said she was very specific about that because she didn't think, she wasn't thinking this book was going to turn into a series. So she right. thought she was just writing this one off <laughs> book about Amelia, who was this 27 year old spinster. And she said, you know, had I realized there was any chance of this becoming a series, I would have never said how old she was, or I would have made her way younger. Because what happens is, if you read the whole Amelia series, you, know, you get to those later books where you feel like Emerson and Amelia must be like 40.
1: And they're well, really like 70. So
0: 70 or right. And I remember reading that, and I thought, okay, I'm not arrogant enough to think that this could actually become a long-running series. However, I'm going to listen to this extremely good advice from Elizabeth Peters and just never say how old Emily is. She's vaguely young. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's good. Okay, so here she is
1: in Venice. Um, and I have to say, uh, before we move on to the the uh, ending, um, you really took me by surprise. I usually can figure out you know, from the way things are written, even with Elizabeth Peters, I can usually yeah. guess who the person is. And um, I was, I was sure I had figured it out. I thought well, I read six books of, by her. I'm sure that this is how it's going to be. And then, um, because I had even suspected the person whom it is. Yeah. And then I thought, no, that's not possible. She not do that. <laughs> Which of our mystery is great, you know, I mean, you really want to be surprised. And once I knew who it was, it made perfect sense and I could see how it had developed. Um, yeah. Oh,
0: good. That makes me very happy.
1: <laughs> so my listeners should hear this and think, ah, oh, this is what I have to pick up because, um, and, and that has been true really for almost all of them.
0: Oh, I'm glad well with this one and I don't you know I don't want to say too much because I don't want to wreck it mm-hmm. for readers but I wanted that that story in the there's a way in which that story in the past mirrors a story in, in the 1890s present that there were kind of two ways of reacting to this sort of situation
1: yes right yeah there is a, a mirroring effect and I won't yeah, say why. I that. wanted it
0: to you know you see that you know really neither of them has a great outcome i guess but but that there are different ways to conduct yourself when the chips are down
1: i also loved it that um old manuscripts old manuscript books in particular are a big part of the story um because i'm a manuscript historian and i've read Um, you know original manuscripts and and they're so beautiful and they
0: are so beautiful i've always been you know i have my my happiest day was when I got my British Library Reader's card, you know, and you can go and look at these unbelievable illuminated manuscripts. They are breathtaking.
1: Yeah, they really are. Now, one thing that I'm thinking as I'm talking to you is that Lady Emily doesn't seem to be as focused on Greek art these days as she was in the beginning. I mean, she's got a lot going on, so that's not understand,
0: but is that going to come back at some point? I absolutely want it to come back because I think it's hugely important to her character. And, you know, this is where you kind of get into competing problems because, you know, you want, you need the book to be taught and focused and not, you know, meandering all over about someone's interests if it's not central to the plot of the story and then, of course, it's tricky to expect that she's going to, you know, every six months or a year, stumble upon some classical art problem that, that leads to a murder that she needs to solve. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I absolutely do. I want her to get back to that. And I always try to have a little something with that in the books. I mean, it was harder in the Venice book because you know that she she was so focused on what was happening then. And then the story from the past isn't pulling her back all the way to the, the antiquities. It's pulling her back just to the Renaissance, not, not classical Greece. Um, but I, I would love to do a book in Greece, have her in Greece. That's yeah, really I think that too. would be
1: great, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Santorini sections really come alive, too. I mean, that's, I'd love to see her back at that villa and maybe on a dig or something like
0: that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, and that's where, you know, with Elizabeth Peters and Amelia Peabody – you know, by having Amelia marry an Egyptologist, they can always be on DIG. And, you know, sadly, that, that idea had already been taken, so I couldn't do that. <laughs> um, but I wanted, the reason I've got Colin in the sort of role he has where he is an agent, trusted agent of the crown, I, I wanted there to be times when he and, and Emily would get embroiled in something through official channels. You know, that that this is Colin's work and Emily's coming in and helping on it because I didn't want it to be too, you get, it gets tricky if you're writing about an amateur sleuth. You know, you get into um, kebett Cove syndrome where, you know, everywhere this person goes, someone dies, you know. Right. And so I wanted there to be that, yes, yeah, sometimes that might happen, but sometimes it might be that there's an official kind of thing pulling, pulling them to do the investigation. And
1: presumably they don't all have to be murder mysteries either.
0: No, and actually, what's what I find very amusing about the whole thing is that when I wrote the first book, I never thought for one second about what kind of book it was. And in fact, when so I, I got you know I queried, I got an agent. When she read it, she said, "You know, I'm really not sure how a publisher would position this because it could just be straight historical fiction. They could decide to call it suspense. And I mean, these are marketing decisions, you know. And when um when my publisher bought it, they sat down and they had a meeting and they said, yeah, you know what, right now it's going to be a much easier sell to sell this as suspense than a straight historical fiction because of, I guess, how the market at that point in time was for historical fiction. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, you call it whatever you want to call it. Print it, publish it, right? Yeah, and so I have, and I mean, then of course, then you start getting pressure from, you know, it's, well, hey, you know, this, this, there needs to be a strong mystery element in this, you know. Uh, but you absolutely wouldn't have to always have a dead body.
1: I'm hoping Colin's going to go to St. Petersburg, I have to tell you. There's lots of Greek art in the Hermitage.
0: I, I really do want to do that. I don't think I can do it for next year. It's just... Honestly, it's just because I don't like to. I, I'm at this point where I don't like to write about a place if I can't go there and spend a significant amount of time in the place. Mm-hmm. And I just I can't go to St. Petersburg for the whole summer, which is very frustrating. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, I I wrote Floating City in Venice. I got an apartment and I was there, and it just that uh, Venice is the the sense of place. I felt like I just had to be there to write the book. But um, yes, yeah, St. Petersburg. Saint Petersburg and
1: Greece are kind of my two big. Well, I'm already Greece. jealous that you get to go to London as often as yeah. you
0: want. But Saint Petersburg, actually,
1: Saint Petersburg is like Venice in a way. It's um, much more than you know. Moscow is a very modern city. It has these mm-hmm. little medieval enclaves, which are wonderful for medievalists. But they, the city itself, is like London. It's bustling right. and everything. But Saint Petersburg is this. It's like this elderly. Um, aristocratic lady. Yeah, and it really hasn't changed that much since Peter's time. I mean, around the outskirts are all these horrible, actually Victorian era factories that spew yeah. smoke and all this stuff. But the center part of the city is just these gorgeous buildings that were put up in the time of Catherine the Great, and they would have been there in Emily's day. They're there yeah. now. It's it's it is like Venice in that way.
0: And it just looks it looks so beautiful because I have I have three shelves of books about st petersburg and many of them are just these you know gorgeous photographs Mm -hmm. of the city and it just looks unbelievably gorgeous and the hermitage i mean oh yeah amazing (laughs) i
1: could just live there (laughs) just walking around i gave up looking at the art the one time i was there i just looked at the rooms they were so beautiful
0: oh that's wonderful
1: um, so uh, I cheated and went to your website so I know that you have a new book coming out in September so, the fall sometime
0: October yeah I think it's October of mm-hmm. 15th, yeah
1: Um. and then so are you already working on the next one
0: I am just in that happy sort of casting around for my plot ideas for the book for next year for 2014 I think I'm about 98% certain it's going to be set in Paris and London Hmm. and that's about all I know right now. I mean, I'm just in that where I'm. I'm I like to start off by reading and reading. So I've been reading letters um, and memoirs of Victorian English women in Paris at the time. And, and you know, usually once you start reading things like that, there's something. There's some little. I mean, you know how this is. You get some little curl that you think, oh wait a minute, what is this? Um, but I just found this wonderful little, almost throwaway article that was in the New York Times, I think it was in 1896, 1896 or 1898, somewhere around there, where they were talking about the tunnels under the Louvre. Oh, really? They had found uh, some section of tunnels, passages, where there were all these bodies, like skeletons, old skeletons. And so there were trying of these scholars saying, well... Their their bodies left from the revolution, and then somebody else came forward and said, No, 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 <laughs> no, this is where Catherine de Medici stashed the people she killed when she was displeased with them. Oh, that's perfect, <laughs> which I just love. So I've got so 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 I've got Paris, I've got Catherine de Medici, and I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, I can
1: hardly wait to find out. And since I've read all the other books, you can be sure I will be watching. So. Excellent. <laughs> we'll be in touch, so to speak. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us today. It's been great. Oh,
0: it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. <laughs> Goodbye, Tasha.
1: Bye. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Tasha Alexander, author of Death in the Floating City. You can find out more about her at www.tashaalexander.com. That's one word, Tasha Alexander. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening to New Books in Historical Fiction.